Good morning, my name is Dina Ward. Today we're going to read from Ephesians 4, 1 through 16. If you're using the Bibles in the back of the pew, it's page 1080. This is a pretty important chapter in the Bible that where Paul is pleading with the Jews and the Gentiles to be together. For, number one, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called, with all the humility and all the gentleness, and with patience for one another, and in love, to be eagerly to maintain the unity of the Spirit, and in peace and the bond of peace. There is only one body, the church. There's only one Spirit. Just as you were called to be in one hope that belongs to your call, there's only one Lord, there's only one faith, there's only one baptism, there's only one God. He is the Father of all, and through all, and he's in all. But grace was given to each one of you, to us, according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says... When he ascended on high, he held a host of captives, and he gave gifts to men, us. And in saying he ascended, what does it mean that, that he had also descended into the lower regions of the earth? He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens, that he might fill all things. And he gave the apostles and the apostles and the prophets and the evangelists and the shepherds and the teachers to equip the saints, us, for the work of the ministry, for building up the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the acknowledge of the Son of God to mature in manhood to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ so that we may all no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried by every wind of doctrine, by the human cunning and by craftiness of deceitful schemes. But rather, we should be speaking the truth in love that we are to grow up in every way into him who he is the head of in Christ, into Christ, from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped when every part is working properly and makes the body grow so that it builds itself up with love. This is the word of our Lord. Well, good morning. It's always a joy, an honor, a privilege, even how cold it might be outside to be with you together. So uh, again, when you see single digits on the weather, you're like, okay. Y'all are committed. That's all I'm saying. So welcome to you, those watching online. No shame, just welcome to everyone watching. So, um, but again, today I pray that the Lord has something for you. Some, there's something special about when we get together as a church. And so just right out the gate, today's message is coincidentally about the church. And so what I want to do, I think one thing that, that we're called to do as a church is to pray. And I don't think you could ever leave church saying, we prayed too much today. And so that being said, I want to open up in a quick word of prayer as we look at God's word and to see what he has for us. I'm praying that today's message is something that blesses you, um, not just because you need to hear something good to tickle your ears, but something that convicts and challenges our hearts. That's what we're after today. That's my goal. So join me in a quick word. Father God, we thank you for a place, a place that we can call a church. And Lord, your word says it doesn't matter who waters, it doesn't matter who plants, but it's you who make it grow. And so, Lord, today I pray hearts of different soils, hearts of different temperatures. Some of us have been walking with the Lord for a long time, and some for a very short time. Some haven't even began the journey yet. And Lord, today I pray that we see growth. We see growth in wisdom and knowledge. Lord, make us something. Our preaching is useless and worthless if you do not anoint it. 
So Lord, we submit to you and your word today and what it has for us and the riches and the beauty of how it can transform our inner being, that it can transform our minds, it can give us hope and it can give us peace and comfort. Lord, let it be done. Let it be so. In Jesus' mighty name. And everybody said, amen. Amen. So again, welcome. We have this year, this beginning of 2024, which is even wild to say that number, right? I know I'm look like I'm 15 to some of y'all, but like to see the, the number 2024, you're like, I thought they made this in like movies and like this was the future and like we're living in the future. But we started this year in a series called Being Human and there's been a big conviction and I don't know what your life looks like. I've got a young three-year-old and so we're always on the go. And so at the beginning of this year, we started telling ourselves, at least me and my wife, it's like we got to slow down. Like my son's only three for 365 days, right? He's only four for 365 days. And you have to slow down. And I think one thing that we deal with in the world today is to always make the most of every circumstance and situation. But I think as, as we do that, there's a tendency, though, to you don't want to miss it, right? You want to live life to the fullest, right? Carpe diem, right? And we get tattoos on our arms about that. But the, the idea, I really think this year, for at least for me, and I think for the staff here at the church, and even as, as a body, I'm praying for us, that we would... Not be worried about a full calendar, but a full heart. I think oftentimes we exchange those of, well, as long as we stay busy, then we'll feel busy. And I think there's a tendency in that that temptation that leaves us empty. You can be busy, and at the end of the day, you feel like you didn't get anything done. And so that's what this series really is. It's about being human. And if you were here three weeks ago, we kind of planted a little seed about your mind and how we love to hurry through things, and we called it hurry sickness. The next week after that, we looked at the idols of our hearts. We all have idols in our hearts as humans that we try to worship. Whether we know it or not, unbeknownst to us, you're all worshiping something. Whether it be yourself, whether it be your job, your career, your your education, or the Lord. And then last week, we looked at our words and how if you're not watching over your words, your words will use you and abuse you. And so this this week, I feel like, is, is a story that we'll start with about what does the church have to do with being a human? Why would, in the world that we live in, why would God make not only you and me in his image, but why would he call us to live in a community of people made in his image? What, what is the accountability there? And so, again, the series conviction was this. If you haven't been watching or if you haven't been listening to the series, this has been our conviction. Who you're becoming is not, or excuse me, who you're becoming is more important than what you're doing. Who you're becoming is more important than what you're doing. The tendency, obviously, for many of us is we come to church, right? Which means we're Christian. We love Jesus because we go to church. I even have a prayer journal, right? And because of that, I'm a Christian. And we do a lot of things that, quote, are religious in activity, but there's no true transform or no intimacy in that to make you transformed. And so who you're becoming is a lot more important. It's like when we teach our kids, right? It's not necessarily what they're doing. It's who they're becoming. Right, my, my son now is at an age where I'm like, I look at Megan and I'm like, did he just lie? Like, like buddy, did you just lie to us? Like, you definitely just took the cookie, right? And so the idea, and it's very simple. I mean, it's Oreos in our house. But like the idea is who you're becoming is more important than what you're doing. And so I want to, I was preparing for this week and came across a story. And uh, I think this story will pretty much help us get started. There was four guys, but two guys in particular, named Chris Temple and Zach Agrassi. And they were economic students uh, in college, and they came across some interesting information in their studies. And so what they wanted to do was they wanted to travel to Guatemala. And what they wanted to do and what they heard about was a good portion of the world lives on $1 a day. And so in Guatemala specifically, um, if you don't know this, Guatemala specifically, there's about 80% of that population lives under $1 a day on average. And so Zach and, 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 and Chris wanted to go, and so they hired two cameramen, and they went. So this is them afterwards. Uh, they have a whole campaign. They did a TED Talk. There's a documentary. Totally do it. But what they did was they went to Guatemala for two months. So they went for 56 days, and their goal was this. We're all going to go. Each of us are going to get a dollar a day. And so Chris and Zach, and these are them, they went for 56 days, and they lived in the hills of Guatemala. And they lived literally off of $1 a day on average. And what's interesting about this whole thing was that they would 
to make it realistic, because if you don't know anything about living in a population like Guatemala, not every day you're guaranteed work. It's not like you have a nine to five job where you're gonna timestamp and go to work that day. So what they did to make it as real as they possibly could was they actually put dollars one through nine in a bucket. And they would each go around and they would all shake it up and they would pick. And that would be their salary for the day. So from $1 to $9. And so they would literally, in one, they would shake it up and they would pull it out. And that was the amount of money that they got. And each one would go around and together, they would then collect all of their money together and say, this is how much money we have to live on today. And so they started having a radish farm. They learned about farming. They had to learn about how to live off the land. They had to learn that wood was one of the most expensive things for them to to use, to cook with. But they would do this to get an idea of what it was like to live in extreme poverty. And it's interesting, if you don't know this, that 51% of the population in Guatemala, excuse me, live off $1 a day. But 80% of the global population lives lives under $10 a day. 80% of the global population, which just went over 8 billion people, lives off less than $10 a day. And in Guatemala, specifically, 51% of them live off of $10, or excuse me, $1 a day. All that to say is, these men learned a very important lesson these 56 days. One is you can see what they looked like, right? They didn't have, uh, they said that the biggest, one of the biggest expenses for them was soap. Which, I mean, again, it's one of those things you don't even think about what is truly valuable to me and you where we just walk up and we get some hand sanitizer and go about our day, right? But the idea was this is what they looked like at the beginning and this is what they looked like at the end of the 56 days. And they had, some of them had gotten sick and so they had to pay for different things. They had to take out a loan. There's a bunch of different interesting things that people in this extreme poverty situation have to do. And one thing that I, I really was convicted with was what they said at the end of this 56 days. This is what they said. You have to rely on your community to survive. You can't live in those circumstances and not have other people. And they had met other people where they had come together, and there was almost like this this beautiful trust fund that they had amongst communities, and they would all have different amounts of money. But the idea was this transformed the way they lived because me and you have so much luxury. I mean, let's let's just call it what it is, right? We are rich. And you might be like, well, I don't know about what your bank account says, but it's in the single digits. Friends, we're in an air-conditioned building right now. You have probably two layers of clothing on at least because of how cold it is, right? And you know that's not the only pair of shoes that you own on your feet. We are rich. We are incredibly rich. And I say that because it brought to my attention just who you're becoming is not more important than what you're doing. And one thing that they, they said was in this interview that they, did, they gave was, you know, it's interesting that in those situations, the situation would typically make you someone. But what they came to learn from the Guatemalan people was those situations didn't dictate who they became. They became loving and caring for one another. And in such a way that they took care of one another. And I thought, what a beautiful picture of the church in a world where we are starving for intimacy, when we're starving for love. A lot of us are emotionally poor. We, we long to find a place where we can join together with people that just understand that it's a struggle just to live. Like, can we all just call it what it is, right? It's a struggle. And I love that this picture just allows us to see what God wants us to do, at least living in community. Just some stats for you. You all know I love stats. Worldvision.com reports about 9.2 of the world's population or approximately 719 million people are living on a daily income of less than $2.15. $2.15. In 1990, it was $1. So just to show you how inflation has even impacted that. 4.4 billion people, or 71% of the global population, lived on less than $10 a day, and that was according to 2011. I say those stats because I think we need to understand something. Me and you were made in God's image, right? And there's something beautiful when the book of Genesis opens up. It's, Genesis just means beginning. And so when the Bible opens up, God creates a universe, right? He creates birds, he creates land, and then he makes people. And what's interesting about this is Adam's, you know, working with animals and doing his thing, and God said, it's not good for you to be alone, right? And so he makes a helper for Adam. And what's interesting about this whole picture was when he makes this, it's very good. It's very good that in God's creation that me and you would have another person. Now, this isn't just marriage. I think this says a lot about how we try to live 
independent of one another. Right? In our world today, it's a staple to be independent. I don't need nobody. And we like make it a, like that's, we're proud. We are so grossly proud of being independent that we forget the beauty of dependency. I think of my son when he doesn't want my help. And I'm like, you know what? Fine, do your own thing. Right? And then the juice falls over the floor, and then you realize I have to clean it up because he's not mature enough to clean it up or understand how to do that. But the idea is we, we almost value independence. And I think, church, that's a big temptation for you and me that we have to call out as a lie. Listen, church, we're not meant to live alone. You're not meant to be proud of your independence. Now, I'm not saying it's, not, it's a bad thing for you to have a little bit of independence in your life, right? You don't have to share sp- cars with your spouse, right? Amen, fellas? You can have your own car, okay? I'm not saying that. But the idea is me and you, there's a tendency that we often face, and that's to be independent. I thought to myself a picture that many of us look at the church like an elevator. So here's my question. Do you look at the church like an elevator? And again, this is an illustration nonetheless, that in elevators, there's four things going through your minds. You ready for it? First one's this. Don't talk to nobody. Okay? Also, face forward, don't look at nobody. So don't talk. Face forward. And also, in the mind of someone riding on the elevator, there's usually two other things on your mind. One is, I hope this thing doesn't stop for anybody else. Please don't stop. Please don't stop. Why are we slowing? Right? And then the other thing on your mind the entire time you're in the elevator is, when's it time to get off? I mean, those, th- this, is, this is, sadly, though, the approach many of us view the church when it comes to independence. I'm here for myself. Just pay attention to the preacher. When he's done, he says, amen, I'm out of here. Don't talk to nobody, right? Stay as silent as you can. And don't look around. And all you can think about when you get here, right, is when's the time to leave. This is how many of us, again, the tendency is that the church is an elevator. And so my big idea today is we look at how this is an interesting picture for us. That the church is not meant to be an elevator. Okay? The idea, obviously, is the church is meant to look like a dinner table. Where you're forced to sit down, right? All your attention is focused on this. And to look at those in your company. And to talk. These are all things that me and you, we're coming into a society that doesn't honor those things. I mean, listen, if you want, if you want to say, well, the preacher said this week, here's what I want you to do. I want you to sit down at your dining table. Do you guys still have those? Sit down and have a meal with all electronics turned off. That's, that's your task. That's your homework for this week. And just watch how that transforms your own brain and heart when it comes to what you have going on in your life. Because when you forget, hey, I've got a family to, to sit down with and eat with. Maybe you're a single person. Find some friends. Be like, hey, the preacher at church said, like, we should have a meal. This is your excuse. Let's have a meal. Okay? Some of you, one of you host it and sit down and just ask yourself after the dinner, like, wow, was that interesting for us to sit down and be a family. Because that's what the church is meant to look like. It's it's meant to be a dining table. And this is where we look at today's big idea, that we are bound to the body, being the church, we are bound to the body by the beauty of the gospel. I don't know if you read passages of Scripture, most likely in the Old Testament. You're probably like the majority where you'll read something and like, I'm just going to skip that one. That one's a weird one, right? Okay. But there's a passage in Matthew 7 that for me has, and it should, I think, trouble any of us in the room, regardless of where you stand. And I'm just going to read it to you, and you can get a picture of what I am saying. Matthew 7, verse 21. Words of Jesus say this. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. And on that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. That's the words of Jesus. And I say that because I have a question, and it's a question that I mean from the bottom of my heart as a brother in Christ. Do we truly know Jesus? And now you're like, well, that's a silly way of saying it. That's simple. Yes. I I call, call you to hesitate before you answer. 
because for these folks in Jesus' company, they were doing these things. They were seeing demons getting cast out. They were seeing lame men walk. They were seeing blind people see. They were seeing the miracles. They were witnessing transformation right in front of them. But what Jesus says would have knocked them off their feet. What, is it, what does it say? Look at, look at the verse with me here, verse 22. On that day, what's it say? On that day, a few? No, it says many. Many. And I think when I ask you the question, do we truly know Jesus? For me, even as a, a pastor, even as a, a minister, an ordained minister, you can call me reverend if you want, by the way. I've got one of those really cool plaques. Here's the crazy part, and this is going to sound harsh. There's going to be tons of so-called Christians in hell. There's going to be people in hell that know the scriptures. They're going to know all the hymns. They're going to know which, which, how to sing them, how to play them. Because the reality is, me and you, we've, we've come to look at the world as we're independent of one another. All i got to do is figure out, like, crack it like a cheat code. And I've got this whole church thing figured out, but church, this is literally one of the biggest things as a church that we can never forget is do we truly know Jesus and does your life reflect this reality? I know you go to church. That's not what I asked. If I could have put up there, do you go to church? And you'd be like, we're here. No, the question is you can be literally front row. I always think it's interesting that the front row is usually the most empty. And I just say that not to cause you to come forward, but the reality of we only want to get so close to what's going on, right? Even church, we're like, I'm going I'm to, no offense to my Baptist friends, those ba- no, 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 there's always a saying in the back row Baptists. It's just, and it's always they're closest to lunch, which is always another funny, it's not true, right? That's so rude, so rude. But, 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 I mean, it's a picture, though. You can see that, that do we truly know Jesus? And there's a term for this that personally, as, as a young pastor, I've had many friends in the pastorate. I've had friends in the pastorate who've left the pastorate. I've had people that have mentored me that have left the pastorate. And not just here. I'm talking about even in previous pastorates. And and, and the reason why I, I say that is because I've watched what the culture has done to the ministry. There's something that's been done by the culture, and I, I don't know if it's good or bad, like on our, our end as ministers, but the culture puts so much pressure that you need to be exactly what we need up here. You need to be able to preach a good sermon. Adam needs to be able to play just right. Julia's got to hit those notes. Mariah's got to hit that, or whatever it is. Back in the back, Nikki and her team, they've got to teach my kids just right. And the reality is, what we've done is we put so much pressure on those who are, quote, in leadership that we forget that this is a body. This is not just for the few to lead and go, wow, aren't they great? Just look at them, man. Like, they really love Jesus. Like, they serve. Like, that's crazy. It, here's the reality. That's not, that's all face. That's all false. You and me, we're the body. And I call it cultural Christianity. And this is a term that's been talked about a lot, cultural Christianity. There's a big difference between cultural Christianity and biblical Christianity. And here's the big difference. Cultural Christianity says if I was raised in the West, in the United States, if I was raised in the West, if my parents went to church, and if I got baptized, I'm a Christian. Biblical Christianity is I live for Jesus every single day. I deny to myself. I read his scriptures, and I try to become a better, at least follower of Jesus, not a better person, a better follower of Jesus every single day of my life. There's a difference between cultural Christianity and biblical Christianity. And I think when we talk about this, here's the great temptation in the church. The great temptation is this, to profess publicly that which you have not possessed personally. To profess publicly that which we do not possess personally. Just this week, a pastor I I highly adore, they're making a documentary about him, all sorts of stuff. And I thought to myself, that's just, I continue to see the target on the pulpit. That we have to stand up and say, listen, Jesus is good. I know whatever you're going through, he's faithful. He's going to see you through. His word never fails. He loves you. Everyone else in the world may say you're worthless, but he says you're worth it. And we can say all these things and get excited. But the reality is you just have to see it from the same way we do. Do we just profess publicly that which we don't even possess? I mean, this is, this is us on, on a sports Sunday, right? 
It's like you put on your jersey. You're like, it's Chiefs, baby. Like, we're going, right? Or whatever. And it's, it, we profess it publicly, but like, do we truly possess it personally? I think it's one of the greatest temptations in the church. And it's a thing that, we, that I'm going to call today called dating the church. I think many of us have this struggle with being independent, right? Because when you're dating someone, I mean, yes, you can confine in someone that you're dating, but there's a level of independence that you kind of dig in when you're dating. You're like, I could just walk up and leave. I mean, I could just call it done, right? There's no paperwork involved, right? There's no mortgages involved. Like, let's just, let's just break up. And dating is interesting because I think that's how many of us, when we look at the independence of individual believers in the church, that we date the church. So let me ask you some questions, and now I got you some reasons why I think we date in the church, and not date in the church, but date the church. Make sure you understand. Are you always on the hunt for the new and attractive? Are you always on the hunt for the new and attractive? They call this church shopping. And for those of you that are guests in the room today, we welcome you to Westside. But no one's excluded from hearing the truth about the gospel. Okay? This church was imperfect right when you walked in. Okay, so if you want to go to a perfect church, keep waiting, okay? Keep searching. Keep looking on Google because it's never going to show up. But are you always on the hunt for the new and attractive? Are you dating the church? Or the opposite, do you run at the sight of going, that's a little too much commitment for me. I think we're, we're friends now, right? It's not you. It's me. It's not you. It's me. Are you dating the church? So let me give you some reasons I think we date the church. This is the first one. We're independent. I've said it before. We are self-reliant, and mutual submission, quote, is intimidating. We see accountability as frightening. And many of us are prideful that we aren't part of the church. I say this, and this is, this is again, where I, I pray that you give me grace in this. As, as one of the pastors here, that I, I've, I've heard a lot of things. And I have been convicted when I hear the words, well, I'm not really, like, part of the church. Oh, so you haven't signed a piece of paper? that makes you part of the church? Is that what you're saying? Because that's what I hear it sounds like, from, and you're almost proud of it. But again, it's because you are prideful of the independence. Westside's where I go to church, but like, I mean, I don't really need it. I'm independent, man. Like, I, I know the scriptures, man. Right? And we're, into, we're independent. And so again, I think the big part of being independent and why we date the church is you fear accountability. And I think this is just the truth, if I could just call what it is, many of you in this room, even myself included some days, we don't like accountability. Mind your business, right? Mind your business. Don't worry about me, right? Take the log out of your own eye, right? And you know some of those scriptures. <laughs> but, but we fear accountability. And I think that's today is why we, why we date the churches. We have to see it as a place of mutual accountability. Mutual accountability. You need what we saw earlier. You need that. You need when someone's broken, you need a brother or a sister to come alongside you. Young men, older men, young women, older women, single women, married women, whatever it is, independent kids, orphans, whatever it is, I, you need other people. In a world that says you can do it all on your own, man, I call that a lie. And I say that's exhausting. So you're independent. The second reason we date the church is that we're indifferent. We don't even see the whole point of church. You even see church sometimes as, quote, legalistic. And at times, unnecessary. You're like, I mean, like, tell, I mean, is it really, like, do I really? You're telling me if I don't go to church every Sunday, I'm not going to go to heaven? Right? That's you. You're indifferent. You're like, prove it. Right? It's like, that. what? You're indifferent. You're indifferent. The third one is this. We are immature. And I say all this with love. See, we, teach, we see church as something that ties us down. This is my son, right? He's just like, I'm gonna, you're not going and you're not going. And I'm like, you're three. Where are you going to go? He'll walk outside. He'll go. I'm like, buddy, you don't even have any idea what you're doing. We're immature. Again, we see something like church that ties us down. Or we say the words that sadly have become almost known to many of us in this room. We say we love Jesus or Jesus Christ, but we don't like the church. Which we'll talk about in a minute is, is just straight up hurtful when you look at scripture, that you can love Christ but not the church. Now, this is not to say that there isn't a thing called church hurt, okay? Where you've went to a church and those that should have loved you at your lowest graded you on your worst day. And church hurt can happen, okay? 
And again, as on behalf of leadership at Westside, I apologize. But we're not perfect. And I say we because anyone in charge has any leadership position. Listen, we're all failures saved by grace. I would love to say we never make a mistake, but I'd just be lying. I would just be lying to you. So, so again, I know church hurt is real, and I know church hurt has become almost a norm in our lives. All of us in this room could almost go around and say, I went to a church one time when you, when you were a teenager, maybe when you went through a rough patch in your life, and you can instantly think of, I didn't like the way they handled this. They didn't treat me fairly. Listen, I, I, I'm not saying that that's all okay, but I'm just saying some of us mentally, spiritually are immature. The fourth one is this, we are indecisive. We can't decide which church we like. We see the church as a store to buy products at a good price. We constantly compare the products to what's being provided elsewhere. Oh, oh, I said it. I said it. It means church shopping. It's what we do. It's a cultural thing. That in a church world that we live in, I mean, you have a variety of options. I mean, you get to pick what worship style you want. What type of preacher do you want? Do you want young or old? Do you want funny? Do you want serious? Right? Do you want worship? Do you want instruments or no instruments? Right? Do you want a quiet church or a loud church? Do you want a church that has child care? Do you want a church that has men's group? Do you want a church that has... And we can begin to look at it like a catalog of like, well, that church, I mean, it's got everything. It's a really good price, too. They got four services. Like, uh-huh. If we're not feeling it one day, we can go to the whatever. And, and, and this is, again, where we're indecisive. We don't even know if the church is willing, worth to commit to. And the last one is this. We're ignorant. We don't know why church matters. So you ask the question, why join or commit to a church if the church is open to everybody? And is church really that important? And I don't know if you grew up in church. I don't know what your background is of how you came to church today. Maybe you're still seeking the faith of like, well, this is an interesting message to hear about on my first Sunday. But the reality is many of us in this room, I guarantee you, and this is a big thing I tell our youth all the time, I know a bunch of adults that don't know how to share the gospel. They love Jesus. They don't know how to share their their faith at all. They're like, I just love Jesus. And you're like, oh, great. Well, tell me what Jesus has done in your life. And they're like, he's been pretty good. And you're like, give me something, right? Like, show me me in your life where he's been been good. So we're ignorant. There's there's a level of us that one of these five things is why we date the church. And I I, I just have to ask us and call us as a minister, as a pastor, to say this. We've got to stop dating the church. And maybe it's not West Side, but here's the reality. I want you to see that the church has such invaluable importance in the world we live in. I know for us, some of us, it's just an hour on a Sunday. But like, we've got to stop dating the church and move to a life and covenant within the church. We must stop dating the church and move to a life lived in covenant in the church. The church is the bride of Christ. And this is a passage in Scripture. We see it in Ephesians 5. It, it, it translates husbands and wives and what it looks like in the church. But, but, but the idea there is that Paul is talking about how the church is to be an image of marriage and how the bride is the body of Christ. And this bride is the body. And he talks a lot about this picture. And I thought to myself, why would Paul say that, Right? Why, why would the church be a body? Isn't that a weird illustration? You're like, oh, it's got many members and like it's all working together. Like, oh, okay, I get it. But the reality is the church is the bride. And I think what Paul does is he wants us to see that there's a commitment if the bride is the body. There's a commitment to the bride. I mean, when we go into our marriage ceremonies, right? It's a ceremony that we exchange vows or we commit to each other. There's a covenant love that we declare in front of our Friends and families, even when you sign a marriage license, what do you have to do? You have to have witnesses. But I think we date, the ch- we date because it's easy and because there's always an exit. But in Paul in Ephesians 5, he's talking about marriage is hard because it takes commitment. And so again, I think when we look at this, now let's turn to Ephesians 5. I promise I'm going to the text. But when we have that, I just want us to see the beauty of the gospel. The beauty of the gospel. If you know anything about the book of Ephesians, like a few months ago we learned about Philippians, it's a prison epistle, which is important because just like with anything of where you're at, it's typically a big uh, dictator of how your heart is, and Paul's in prison when he's writing about unity. 
And Paul, we're, we're seeing in Acts, he helps plant this church, this church grows. But he writes letters to and from. It's a communication. It's a prison communication for Paul. And the first three chapters of Ephesians, it's six chapters long. The first three are all about the gospel, all about how the gospel story impacts our story. And so what Paul does as a, as a very good author is he starts with the gospel. Here's all the things you need to know about the gospel. We've been saved by grace through faith. It's, it's not your own doing, but it's, it's a gift. And so Paul talks about how we're, we're gifted with the gospel. It's not something you can earn. He goes in then, Ephesians 2, Ephesians 3, that the gospel's been revealed to us. Then we get to Ephesians 4, and he starts with, I therefore, which is just to give you an idea that he's going to change how does the community of Christ, the body of Christ, live in light of the gospel? Because in a world like this, where everyone is independent, Paul's going to call them to do something radically different. So instead of being independent, Paul's going to re rely on and say something else. And this is what I want to do. I want to start with just verses 1 through 6 as I reread it for us today. I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called. With all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. Now, that whole scripture, we could, like, we could camp there, okay? I promise we could. But, but Paul is calling the church to one, what does he say? Have humility. Be gentle. Be patient. These are fruits of the Spirit. Bearing with one another in love. And then he says the words, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. I mean, that's poetry. That's beautiful poetry. But what Paul is doing is getting us to see that the church must live different. The church should look different. Do I need to say it louder? The church should look different. It should look different than your workplace. It should look different than whatever groups you attend. The church, what distinguishes a church from a country club? Right, because that's the, that's the joke of the church is just a country club where you give your dues and you get to say you go there. But, but the church is something that should be different and it should be living different. We're a living organism. And so Paul starts with, I'm a prisoner calling you to live in a manner worthy to which you've been called. All of us in this room have been called to live by those few things. Where do we need to grow in our faith? Is it a humility? Some of us are just got a, such a big head you barely even got in here. Some of you, you need gentleness. You're very harsh. Maybe it's patience. Maybe you're, and no guys, don't get offended on me here. Many of us need patience. It's even a joke of like, don't pray for patience, right? Because you might get it. Bearing with one another in love. I mean, setting your differences aside. I know you want to be right, but is it at the casualty of your brother or sister? I mean, are, are we bearing with one another in love? Are you eager to even maintain the unity of the Spirit in the church? I think for some of us, we don't even know what that means. Am I eager to maintain? I think so, right? I say hi to people at the door. Are you, are you working earnestly to keep the unity in the church? In other words, when you hear a prayer request, you instantly turn it into a rumor. Is that you? That, that we naturally look to, to break the bond of peace. This is a place that we're supposed to lean on each other. And this is where we can be tempted to, to call each other out. Of, well, at least I'm not like that person. I think there's a, even a passage in Scripture about that. Like, at least I'm not sinning like that person. The church is not meant to, to do that. It's meant to, again, be a place of eager unity. And the reason why I say this is it's our first point. It's in your handout. We should be living differently by the wealth of our unity. We need to live different by the wealth of our unity. We are called to be rich with unity. And you might be thinking, and this is like, I don't know if you had brothers like me. I had a brother uh, five years older than me. I have some half-brothers. But my brother, I lived with him the majority of my, my life. And there's nothing worse than when you get in a fight with your brother, right? Because, I mean, one, I knew my brother could always knock me out. I mean, he's like five foot seven, But I still always thought he could knock me out if he wanted to. But it was nothing worse than there was a, a fight between us because mom would have to do something. She'd be like, all right, AJ, Alex, figure it out. And, of course, it was like, well, he, this is what he said. By the end of it, though, guess what? Unity. My mom didn't make us hug, because to me, I don't know. But I'm not hugging him, but we would dab, right? We would dab each other. Like, are we good? We would, brothers would come together in peace. This is a, a story. I saw it circulating in Facebook the end of December. 
But, but the church should be known by its wealth of unity. And it's this. It was a Philip Yancey's quote that he's talking about someone that had come to church late. Let me read it to you. Some of you I know probably even shared this on your Facebook. Let me read you a story about the church should be a, a place that has immense wealth of unity. It says this, When I'm late to church, people turn around and stare at me with frowns of disapproval. I get the clear message that I'm not responsible as they are. But when I'm late to AA, the meeting comes to a halt and everyone jumps up to hug and welcome me. They realize that my lateness may be a sign I almost didn't make it. When I show up, it proves that my desperate need for them won out over my desperate need for alcohol. Again, is the church known for its wealth of unity? And I think if, you, if you're being honest, there's a tendency to look around and say, we could always improve in this area. If, even if you have a bad day, we, 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 we need to remind ourselves that the church is a place of unity. It's a place of calling us together. I love what John 13, 34 through 35 says. Jesus says, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another just as I have loved you, also are to love one another. And look what he says, verse 35 in John 13. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you know the scriptures, if you go to church, if you, right? Mm, if you love one another. You're like, I don't like that grade, right? I don't like that grade, right? This is the truth of where Jesus knows exactly where our hearts need working. It's in the unity that we give each other. The same grace that you've been given, we're also to give. And even Paul says this in Ephesians. He goes on to talk about this. That you, you're supposed to love because I've loved you. I've given you grace. Why don't you give? Listen, you've got so much grace. I've given you so much grace. Why can't you just share a little bit? And that's where Paul calls us out. Verses 7 through 10, we can look back to the text. Paul says, But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. And that's just a small there. We, we should be living differently by the level of our generosity. By the level of our generosity. Okay? And Paul talks about this. It's actually going to quote Psalm 68. And so I'll read this text and give you some understanding. Because if you're anyone else, that's normal. You're reading that going, did Paul just go on a tangent? So verse 7, But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gifts. Perfect. Verse 8, Therefore, it says, When he ascended on high, he led a host of captives, and he gave gifts to men. In saying he ascended, what does it mean that he also had descended into the lower regions, the earth? He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens, that he might fill all things. All this is saying in Psalm 68, it's talking about the psalmist saying that God gives gifts from above. Me and you. He gives gifts from above because he's from above. So when he descends, that's the beauty of when you see Jesus coming to earth. That's Paul's on kind of a small tangent there about the gifts that he's given the individual believers, you and me. And when we come together, those gifts can be glorified together. Listen, and then Paul goes on. Look what he says, just to, just to prove it to you. Verse 10, He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens, that he might fill all things. And he gave the apostles, the prophets and evangelists, the shepherds and teachers, to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children, tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by cunning, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head into Christ. This is, this is again, where the church is to live differently with how they use their gifts. And, I'll, and this was going to be a message a little bit about giving, because I don't know if you know this, but the average churchgoer gives 2.5% of their income. And this isn't a message about tithing, Right, but, but you're like, well, the Bible doesn't say to give 10%. Right, if you're actually going to look at the Old Testament, it's 23%. So if you want to talk about what Scripture says about giving, but I say this because we all, even those that are talented in this room, musicians, those that can clean, that have artistry in their minds, that they just see things before it can even be thought of, you all have gifts in this room. Paul's saying that we should be a church that not only comes together under the blood of Christ, but we're also gifted by the body of Christ. And together, that's where we begin to grow and see this building up of love. We build each other up. We build each other up. Again, the church should live different 
in a world of independence by the level of our generosity. By the level of our generosity. The last thing is this. The church should live different by the growth of our maturity. By the growth of our maturity. Now this is one that's a tough one because what he says is in verse 16, for whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped. When each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. This is such a small passage here where we're called as a whole body. A whole, a whole, not, just, not just those who are like you, right? Not just your pew. This is all of us working together. And here's the part that Paul's trying to call us out. He's also saying with those who are different than you that have different convictions than you. This is the one tendency in the Western world that we have is that we're going to go to a church where everyone votes like us, talks like us, and dresses like us. And, and, and Paul is saying that when this thing is held together by every joint with which it's equipped, when each part is working properly, then it's able to grow. Healthy things grow. Obviously, we know this. But this is where as the last few months, even here, guys, it's been tough to watch this. I've spoken to some of our staff about this. It's broken my heart to watch how the level of disunity has caused us all to walk away just scoffing and mad at each other. Listen, as, as your pastor, we have to truly look at what Scripture says. We can have different convictions when it comes to what we should do and don't do. But when it comes to the gospel, when it comes to seeing new people come to faith, when it has about people coming in that are broken, we don't, those are non-negotiables. You shouldn't be here either if we judge you on your bad day. We don't read the red door welcome because it just sounds good. It's a conviction. Those who mourn, those who want comfort, like, is that any, right? Every, every Sunday, aren't you like me? And you're like, that's me today. Right? There's never not a Sunday where I'm like, well, that's good for that person. It's always for me. And Paul's saying this from a prison cell that we need to have unity in the body of Christ. We need to have unity in the body of Christ. And that's what we end with today. That's what we end with today. That we are the body of Christ when we are bound in community. We are the body of Christ when we are bound in community. You by yourself are not the bride. You're like, the bridegroom's going to come back and get me, baby. What? The body is the bride. And we are bound together in community. Bound together in community. I don't think many of us, we see the challenge, the challenge that we have with, with this task. We say, that's easy. I'm just going to go and talk to some people after church today, and I've, I've checked off the list. But the reality is, in this room today, I'm going to ask us to do something. I want you to think of a brother or sister in Christ that you know not everything's 100% with whether it be a fight you recently got into, whether it be a disagreement, whatever it might be. I don't care how long ago the argument was. Maybe it's someone in this room right now. Maybe there's more than one person in this room that feels this way. You know there's a calling that we have to, to listen to. Don't ignore it. Don't ignore it. Even in my own heart, the last few months, it's been very difficult because there's a lot of difference in the room. And here's the thing. The church is meant to have differences. That's the beauty of the diversity of the church. Black, white, Asian, whatever it is. But are we truly honoring that and seeing for what it's worth, that there's unity, there's power. When me and you get together, things happen. We can't argue, we can't fight. Paul's saying like little children. I love the way he uses the word children. Like You're not like little children anymore. You're not bickering and fighting. Right? Mine, no, mine. And we're like little kids playing with toys, with the gospel. The gospel is not meant to be played with. It's meant to be worshipped and to live as according to the gospel. To live as if we love one another like Christ has loved us. Does that truly show in our lives that we love the Lord? I mean, when you think about do you truly know Jesus? I, like the thought, Job 23 Like, I'll never depart from your commandments, he says. I've, I've treasured your words more than food. This is Job. 
Do we, do we truly treasure what God has said about us? Psalm 73. Who am I in heaven but you? There is not a thing on earth I desire more than you. Do we believe that? Like, do, do we see the beauty of the gospel? That's my prayer. Pray with me, Jesus. Lord, I feel like there's never enough that could be said about how much you love the church. Yes, you love individuals. But Lord, there's something powerful when we get together and we pray with one another. We confess sins to one another. We worship together. And Lord, I'm so so tempted just to, to say, I'll try again tomorrow. But Lord, today I feel like you're calling us to to bring peace into situations. Lord, maybe it's peace within marriages in this room. I pray that you would let the church just be a place where they can bring unity into any situation. That we look to the gospel that says that you came to earth to make peace with everything in heaven and on earth. There's not one thing that can't be brought to unity through the power of the gospel. So Lord, I pray for friendships. I pray for marriages. I pray for parent-to-child relationships. I pray for brother-to-brother, sister-to-sister. Lord, bring unity into a place like this. Let us be a place that actually broadcasts what the gospel can do. Not just be a a banner of what we're against, but be a people of what we're for. We're for you, Jesus. Let our hearts and minds truly live that. Lord, that what we are not, make us. That what we know not, teach us. Let us be a place and a people that live transformed by the gospel. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.